Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. This week on the podcast, Adam Mertz speaks with Whitney Johnson. Johnson's research and work in disruptive innovation shapes how individuals and corporations manage change. After publishing her book, Disrupt Yourself, Johnson was recognized as one of the world's 50 most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50 in 2017 and 2015. Through speaking, writing, coaching, and consulting, she synthesizes the key levers of change and how to use them effectively. Johnson is a frequent contributor for the Harvard Business Review and a LinkedIn influencer. Her new book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve, builds on her work and research with teams and disruption. She will deliver a keynote at CUNA's America's Credit Union Conference later this year. Winnie, why don't I start you out with a nature-nurture question? Can you teach or coach someone to be innovative? Is that a born or bred trait? I think it's both. We're born with innate talents and gifts and capacities, and there are certainly some areas where we're more gifted than in others, but I strongly believe, and I can't actually emphasize this enough, that I that our brains, and, and obviously the research bears this out now, it didn't 20 years ago or even 30 years ago, but that our brains are plastic, our habits are plastic, our hearts are plastic. So, so I think we are born with some inclination to be more innovative or not, but if we want to be more innovative, we want to be more creative, we can teach ourselves to, to do that. What kind of tactics... Would you say, I mean, every case is different, but what kind of tactics would you say help people bring out those innovative qualities within themselves? Well, one of the things that um, I, I discovered when I was working um, with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, and we were um, trying to identify companies that were innovative, and in particular, companies that were disruptively innovative. Um, some of the things that we discovered um, that allow people to be more innovative and creative are a willingness to play where other people are not playing. Uh, we tend to, like a kid in grade school, right? There's this playground, and we all want to play on the playground with everybody else, and yet that doesn't lead to us doing anything very new. And so people who are able to be innovative are willing to play where no one else is playing. And to understand that if they're willing to do that over time, they're probably going to discover some things that no one else is discovering or seeing because they're playing where no one else is playing. So I think that's certainly one way that people can find ways to be more creative and innovative. Another, another way is for us to, to be willing to play to our strengths. I think oftentimes we tend to overvalue what we don't do well and we undervalue what we do do well. And yet in order for us to really be at our most creative, at our most innovative, we need to be leaning into our strengths. And then as we lean into our strengths to play where other people aren't playing. And those are two ways, two attributes or traits that if we have them or we're willing to develop them, they help us to be more creative. And, and the third I would say is a willingness to embrace our constraints. It's really interesting to me. Um, Steven Spielberg, um, when he was filming Jaws, there was this big mechanical shark that he wanted to use, uh, but it wasn't working. And so eventually he's now over budget and behind schedule, and he finally decides to shoot the scenes from the shark's point of view and let all the music, and anybody who's listening to this right now, I know you can hear it in your head, and let the and let our imaginations do the rest. And, and another 
piece of data or, or research that I think is really, really interesting around this is that there was a postmortem done of 200 failed startups, and they divided them into funded startups and unfunded startups, so the ones who had raised outside capital or external capital and the, and the companies that had to bootstrap. And what they found is that the number one reason that the funded startups went out of business was that they ran out of cash. And it was only the number 10 reason for the unfunded startups. And so the question that you ask yourself is, were these, you know, with Steven Spielberg, were these startups successful in spite of their constraints or because of them? And I would argue that some of our best creativity, some of our best innovations come about because of the constraints that we have and are figuring out how to work around them, how to work with them. And, and so for, for any sort of really innovative person, I think a, a constraint, um, it's not a check on freedom, a check on our possibilities, but it's in fact a tool of creation. So those are the three things or uh, tools that I, I think people can use to help themselves become more innovative or creative. You know, on that last point, obviously the phrase necessity is the mother of invention um, comes to mind. When, How does someone put logical constraints on themselves in an exercise or an organization when your natural pull is, I want everything, I want all the resources, I want all of the uh, bandwidth to be able to explore what's out there? Well, I think the good news around this is that rarely is that ever possible. We rarely have all the time in the world. We rarely have all the money in the world. We rarely have all the buy-in from everybody we need approvals for. So there are almost always built-in constraints. That being said, I think that one of the ways that we can get our creative juices flowing is if we know that we've got two months done, two months available or allocated for a project, what if you said, you know what, you've got to get it done in a month? What would happen if after you had to have it be done in a month and then you said, oh, surprise, now you've got another month? You know, can you imagine how good your product would be after that month and then you'd have this whole additional month to improve and refine, refine the final or finished product? With money, you can do things like, okay, well, you know, you think your budget's going to be a hundred. Um, what would you do if your budget were only 50? And, and then in terms of buy-in, we all have this idea of, you know, these ideas are mine, therefore they're brilliant. But what if we said to people, you know, you've got to get buy-in from all of your different stakeholders, and you need to do that as if you were going to get buy-in from a 10-year-old. Explain it in a language that it would make sense that a 10-year-old would say, yes, I'm doing this, I'm going to green light it. So I think that while almost always there are constraints built into any situation, I think there are ways that we can artificially create them or, or, or create synthetic constraints that can get the best work out of us. One other point that I want to follow on of that first set of responses that you gave was about the playground and the mentality of having to play the game that's being played. How do you explore areas that you don't understand or don't know that you want to play in? One of the ways is constraints actually precipitate that. Um, they force you to explore other options. So I'll give you an example from my own career. Um, when I was working on Wall Street, I was an investment banker and our bank was acquired. And then um, there was a big management shakeup and my boss was fired. And then I got moved. Actually, I got shoved into equity research. So if you're not from financial services, or I should say we're all from financial services listening to this, but investment bank, you would know that moving from investment banking to equity research is like going from flying a fighter jet to a cargo plane. So like ego, huge hit. 
But then once I get there, I'm supposed to cover the cement and construction sector. It turns out they already have a cement and construction analyst. So the question becomes, what am I going to do? How does one apply this idea of playing where no one else is playing? Um, and so what ended up happening is that there were a number of media companies going public, and there was no, there, there wasn't an analyst to cover them. And so the theory of disruption would dictate, rather than like knocking on the cement door that's closed that I'm trying to walk through and I can't, I just build my own door. And so one of the ways that we can find places where no one else is playing is recognize the constraints that get built into any situation where like, I've got to find a workaround. And in finding that workaround, um, we frequently find a way to play where others aren't. I think the other way that we play where no one else is playing is most all of us in the course of our work, we have ideas and oftentimes they seem silly, they seem little, which is what a disruptor is, is a silly little thing that takes over the world. And so I would be more willing to pay attention to those ideas of, oh, that wouldn't work. We all get them all day long, every day we have these ideas of, oh, that wouldn't work. If we're willing to listen to those ideas and write them down and at least give them, entertain them even a little bit, we're going to start to discover some places to play where other people are not playing. It sounds like that responsibility also for creating an environment where those ideas are welcome falls to management to to create that openness where people don't feel strange bringing up these silly ideas. W- what recommendations do you give for people who aren't in a situation like that but want to build an environment where there is creativity involved? Yeah. So whenever um, you've got a, a manager or a boss who's not open to your creativity, it's usually because they're scared. And, and so every time you're trying to introduce a new idea, it's, it's incumbent on you to some extent to de-risk that idea for them. I think one of the ways you can de-risk it and help create an environment where your ideas are more likely to get buy-in is to say to yourself or put yourself into that stakeholder's shoes. What jobs is this stakeholder trying to get done? What are they trying to accomplish, both functionally and emotionally? And then think, okay, if I were this person and I had to get buy-in for my report's idea, who would I have to get buy-in from and what would they want to know? Uh, what would their concerns be? Would they be financial? Would they be time, et cetera? And try to make it so that you are creating your idea or framing your idea in a way that your boss could pitch it to their boss, you start to make it um, safer for yourself by making it safer for your boss to be able to make it safer for your boss to feel safe with that person's boss. That makes a lot of sense. And and I think that a lot of people maybe are um, don't think that chess move ahead that way and just kind of want to throw their ideas out there. So really self-critiquing ideas is important as coming up with the idea itself, it seems. Yeah. And, you know, we all do it. When I look back on my career, I can think of so many times where I would have this idea. And and sometimes there were good ideas, sometimes they weren't. But I, it's almost like I would hand it to my boss and say, here, you do all the work. You do something <laughs> with it. Right. And, and and we do that a lot because, again, it's ours and therefore it's brilliant. And so if we can say to ourselves, all right, but I can't get them to buy in unless I help them see how brilliant it is. I've got to do the work. I've got to be humble enough to get buy-in from them. And I think if we're willing to do that, we'll start to see that these creative ideas, these, you know, let's just try this kind of idea, 
is much more likely to, to gain some traction. The other thing I would add to that is is a willingness to say, okay, I've got this idea. And this, again, goes to the work, but it's a little bit more tactical, is to say, okay, I've got this idea for something that we can do. For example, I myself want to take on a new role inside of my organization. If I can go to my boss and say, I think there's this opportunity out there to play where no one else is playing. Your boss is like, oh, I don't know. Well, you can say, well, we all know that over 50% of the jobs that are going to exist in 15 years don't yet exist. I think there's an opportunity here. And here's how I think we could generate five times in revenue of what you're paying me. Let's do a little test to see if, in fact, there might be something here. Now you've framed it in a way that your boss is going to look really good if, if it works. And so, again, you're always putting yourself in your boss's shoes. How do I make my boss look good? You know, you have a a successful podcast now that you launched, and I want to check in with you. I always like turning the tables like this in terms of what do you look for in potential guests? What impresses you from a, a leadership standpoint that you'd want to have someone on and hear more about how they operate? I just want people on the show that I think are interesting. So when you asked me that question, I had to analyze a little bit, like, what am I looking for? And one of the things I, I here's some of my criteria, people who are driven, uh, people who have a point of view, people who have had experiences different than mine. Um, I've noticed, you know, I don't have a lot of people on the show that have had a background similar to mine, because it's not different enough. It's not I don't find myself curious enough about it because I feel like perhaps arrogantly that I could write that story because it feels like it's my own story. But the other thing I would say is that I I found that I interview a lot of people who are first and second generation immigrants, mm. like a lot, a disproportionate number, I think, given the percentage of the United States. And I think that's probably because my topic is disruption. My topic is personal disruption. And whenever you immigrate to a new country, you, I mean, like that is massive disruption. Their life, their parents' life, they have to learn how to start over. And once you've learned how to do that, you, you do that one time, then you can do it over and over and over again. And so I find that in particular, I am very drawn to people who have had that experience of being an immigrant, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, that's a great, great observation. Um, and you also talk about probably constraints in that situation of how they had to uh, invent ways to succeed. Absolutely. I mean, I just not too long ago, I had a fellow on, Salah Afshar. He's the chief digital evangelist at a company called Salesforce.com. Probably many of you know it. Well, and they came here. His father was a PhD back in Iran. They moved here and he worked as a janitor night shift here in the United States. Wow. I mean, that's astonishing, right? It's astonishing. The humility, the willingness to do whatever he had to do for his family. I mean, and so it's that kind of experience. And so Val is this amazing man. And yet I I think how could, he's partly amazing because of, of who his parents are and the experiences that he had as a child. And, and, you know, they just came to the United States. They were going on vacation, but, surprise, it's not vacation. That to me is once you learn how to do that and deal with that upheaval, you can do it over and over and over again. Are there some parallels between the qualities that you mentioned about the people that you want to learn more from and those that you would try to surround yourself with when you are building a team? Hmm. 
Yeah, it's funny that you say that. So what did I say? I want people who are driven. I want people who have a point of view. I want people who have experiences different from mine. It's an interesting observation. Yeah. So what am I looking for in a team? Well, every the, the way I think about a team is that every single person is on a learning curve. Think of it as an S in your mind. And you've got at the bottom of the S the inexperience that comes with trying something new. And you're typically at that point on the learning curve from six months to a year. So you start a new job, you start a role, you come home from work every night. I have no idea what I'm doing. But gradually as you put in the work, you start to feel like you know what you're doing. And then you get into the knee of that S, go up to the back, which is really, really steep. And that's your area of tremendous engagement. And where you you feel competent, you feel confident, um, all your neurons are firing. And then you get to the top of the curve, and that is a flat part again where you know exactly what you're doing. You're considered a master, but because you're not learning anything, you get bored. And what I look for in a team is you want to have 15% of your people at the high end of that curve who are experts, who are on the top of the mountain. They have perspective. They can be the pace car that brings everybody else along. You want to have 15% of your people at the low end of that learning curve where they're inexperienced. On the one hand, they don't know what they're doing. But on the other hand, because they're inexperienced, they ask all sorts of pesky questions Mm -hmm. like, why do we do it like this? And that opens the door to lots of different kinds of innovation because they're not blind to familiarity. Then you want 70% of your team in the sweet spot of their learning curve at any given time. People who know enough but not too much. They're feeling very competent. They're capable. They can, they're really the engine of the team or the organization. And, and what's important about that learning curve strategy is that once you get to the top of a learning curve, you don't say, I've paid my dues. I'll stay here forever. You're driven. You want to learn. And so you're ready to, now that you've learned, you're ready to leap. And then every three or four years, you repeat. So you learn, leap, and repeat. And when you're willing to have people at different stages on their learning curve on your team, what happens is that your team is able to innovate. Your team is able to to avoid being disrupted because everybody's always learning. And when you're learning, you're engaged. And when you're engaged, you innovate. And when you're innovating, you basically lowered your we're about to be disrupted score. What I'm thinking about right now is from an organizational development um, angle perspective, where you have a lot of people who are established in their jobs, who have been there a long time, but they're valuable assets to the to the company, to the organization that you're in. How do you present new challenges for them within your organization? Well, there are different things you can do. Um, so it does not necessarily mean that you have to take on a new role. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, one person that I actually profiled in my book. He's He's been the CEO of a company for almost 20 years. It's WD-40. But what they what he does, a couple of things, is they've gone into China, right? So mm-hmm. taking on a whole new strategy, moving into a new market, that's pushing you to jump to a new learning curve. And he's continually requiring the people around him to jump to a new learning curve. If you think about it, you can take on a new functional responsibility, but there's also ways to jump to a new curve by reconfiguring your teams, reconfiguring who you work for, reconfiguring who works for you, reconfiguring who you work with. And so for people at the top of that learning curve, what's important is that they don't say to themselves, I paid my dues, I don't need to work. They're getting bored. You're finding either new functional challenges for them to take on. They can jump to a new team. They can um, 
they can uh, take on new projects and then they can also work with different people on different projects. If you've been historically only working with, you know, X group of clients, work with Y group of clients. So there's lots of different ways to make that work to get people so that they are no longer bored and again learning so that they can innovate. It seems to me that there's probably also a lot of work that organizations could do to take a look at the way that individual jobs are structured to try to harness a lot of the creativity and provide flexibility um, while achieving the same goals. And I don't know if you have any examples of, of how that might be done, how you take the same job and you structure it just a little bit differently so that you're tapping into an entirely different potential in, in the individual who's filling that role. Yeah, so I think that builds on um, what I said just a moment ago. So, for example, if I, let's say I'm in sales and I have historically um, serviced clients with the name A to J, and um, now, and, and so I know these clients really well. Um, I know everything about them. We've gotten pretty comfortable, and it's sort of commonplace for them and for for me. Um, what if I said, okay, I want you now to service clients with the company names from K to Z. That's very different. Mm-hmm. Brand new people. You've got to service new people. You don't know what their needs are. You don't know what that looks like. Now, at some level, that's a huge risk, right? Because you're used to the company's revenue or generating revenue that you get paid on, et cetera. But it's also this kind of shakeup that forces you to revisit how you do everything. Again, it's a little scary for the employee. It's a little scary for the company. But it's that kind of shakeup that gets people really thinking differently and in very, very fresh ways. The element that I'm thinking of now also is sort of managing this change I'm wondering from your perspective how you've noticed successful organizations making sure that you're staying on track as you disrupt yourself. Yeah, so it's really interesting that you asked that. Um, in, in the book, um, Build an A-Team, I, I interviewed a, a, a woman by the name of um, Stacey Petrie, who's an executive compensation consultant. And one of the things, she actually provided a script. And so I'm going to try to recap that script as, as best as I possibly can, is to say to your, so when you've got a manager who says, we need to shake things up, and you say, okay, we can, I want you to know that this is a risk when we do this. When we're going to have this person go from A to J to K to Z for their clients, there is a risk. Now, I think there's a 70% probability that it's going to work, but there's a 30% probability that it won't work. I think it's the right risk to take, and certainly it will develop XYZ person. Um, but if it doesn't work, will you have my back? And I think what that does is it puts things in probabilities instead of things being binary because nothing's ever binary. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it alerts the boss to the fact that you are assessing the risk involved, noting that you're going to develop the person. It might not work. And, and, kind of, and, and saying to them, okay, we're going to do this, but I need to know that you're going to back me up if it doesn't work out the way that we originally envisioned because nothing ever works out the way we expect it will. I'm wondering both individually and in the, within the team concept of strategies that you've seen that do the best job to maximize individual and team potential. So you need to manage people differently depending on where they are on the learning curve in order to help people reach their potential. So for example, for people at the low end of the curve who are just starting out, it's really important that you let them know, okay, I expect you're going to be in this role for three, maybe four years. And so 
We need to have a plan for what your first six months is going to look like. We need to have a plan or some ideas for what we think successful will look like once you get to the top of the curve. Here's what I need from you um, and what do you need from me. And so then we're going to have this agreement. And it's not just tacit. It's like a real agreement that once you get to the top of that learning curve, if you've done these three things that I asked you to do, then I will deliver on my promise to you to help you jump to a new learning curve. That will make you happy and it will help the organization because over time, again, when you learn, leap, and repeat, you remain engaged and innovative, et cetera. For people who are in the sweet spot of the learning curve, you give them stretch assignments. There has been research done that people are reluctant to give high potentials, which tend to be people in the sweet spot of the curve. We don't give them stretch assignments because we're afraid that they'll fail. Hmm. And so one of the things that we need to do is be willing to say, you know, there's a real possibility of failure for this person in the sweet spot, but this is the only way that they're going to continue to grow. We need to give them Goldilocks assignments, assignments that aren't, aren't too hard and not too easy so that they remain engaged and innovative, et cetera. And then at the high end, and we touched on this a little bit, is once they get to be a master, they need to know that, that they get to jump to a new curve in six months to a year, and they also need to know that you expect them to jump. Some people want to jump, some people don't want to jump. And then, and then while they're waiting to jump, there are things that you want them to do to like set the pace for the low end of to excel, like, like a pace car would on a, on a NASCAR race. You expect them to convey the tribal memory and also to facilitate collaboration amongst the people at the low end and the middle. So those are some of the things that you can do to help people reach their potential, both at the low end and the high end. You know, I think that a lot of organizations are getting it now in terms of um, having a healthy churn, but there's so many that are still uh, maybe in the mentality of uh, someone gets in a job and has just been in that job forever. And um, there's not enough career pathing going on. Where do you see most organizations at on that curve of adaptation to maybe the new way that people look at careers? I think it's still really early days. Um, you know, it's interesting. There's a uh, piece of research out uh, from, actually not a research, but a survey that Forrest Greisberg at the Harvard Business School does. It's called Building a Great Company, and they do the survey every year. He's done it for the last 10 years. And in 2017, they surveyed 450 small and medium-sized businesses, and they asked them to rate how effective they were on about 20 different HR practices. The one that had the third lowest in terms of effectiveness was developing high potentials, and the one with the absolute lowest rating, and this was not atypical, this is very typical, was job rotation. Mm. So people are not letting people learn and leap and repeat. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but they're not doing it successfully. And yet when people do do it successfully, you find companies like WD-40 where they have people who started as a receptionist. They're now the company brand manager. And whereas you've got company engagement scores on average in the United States at 30%, on average at 15% outside of the United States, their company engagement scores are over 90% because when people learn, they're engaged. And so it's not, there aren't a lot of companies doing it, but the ones that are have a huge competitive advantage. I believe one of our credit unions uh, said it to me this way, that if, uh, the danger isn't in training people and having them leave. It's in not training them and having them stay. Bingo. 
Um, you'll be a keynote speaker at ACUC this summer. What message do you intend to deliver for attendees of that conference? I want to deliver the message of for every attendee that I think every person in the room wants to be a great boss. Every person wants to be a great leader. They want to be a place where people want to come to work. And then they have this struggle, this tension of having quarterly reports and targets and deadlines. And so you find yourself wanting to be a great boss, and yet you need people right where they are doing what they've always done. And so you become that boss. And so I want to convey that it just doesn't have to be that way, that if you can learn and leap and repeat, if you can allow the people to learn and leap and repeat, they will be more engaged. They will be all in. And because they're all in, they're going to be even more productive and ship even more product. And in the process, you become a boss that people love and that people want to work for. And so that's what I want to deliver. I want people to understand what that looks like and give them some give them a framework for managing the learning of people and give them a framework for being able to become a boss that people want to work for to to basically become a talent magnet. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.